Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Sandra Aldrich tells the following story in an article she entitled, Do You Have In-Laws or Do You Have Outlaws? She says, I remember one Sunday afternoon early in our marriage when my mother-in-law asked me this question. She said, well, what little wifey things did you do this week? I tried to ignore her condescending uh, a tone and thought back to the batch of chocolate chip cookies I'd made just a few days before. My husband, Don, had devoured them, saying, these are my favorites. Wanting to show her I was taking good care of her son, I chirped, I made his favorite cookies. She smiled and said, oh, did you make peanut butter? So I had the good sense to keep my mouth shut right then, but you better believe Don heard about that scene a little later. I said, why did you tell me chocolate chip is your favorite cookie? I asked him. In his typical peacemaking way, he chuckled and said, well, chocolate chip is my favorite cookie that you make, and peanut butter is my favorite cookie my mom makes. It says, even in the short time I'd been married, I'd learned I wasn't going to get Don to share my frustrations about his mother, so I made two decisions. I'd never mention cookies in front of Don's mother again, and I'd stop anticipating the worst each time we visited her. After all, you usually, when you expect the worst, you usually get it. Well, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, as far as mother, mothers-in-law are concerned, because mothers-in-law have been the uh, object of jokes throughout human history. And there's one particular joke that uh, is an all-time classic that I promised that I would never share again on Mother's Day. <laughs> I said on Mother's Day. Now, now listen to me. Is today's Mother's Day? No. What day is today, gentlemen? It's Super Bowl Sunday. And so on Super Bowl Sunday, we're going to get the all-time classic story regarding mothers-in-law. There's a man who goes jogging one early morning. As he's jogging down the street, he notices up ahead of him what seems like a line of people walking down the middle of the road. As he gets closer, he begins to realize these aren't just people, these are men. And they're men and they're walking single file down the road. And he starts to go by and he starts to count 50, 100, 150, 200, 250, and he goes around the bend and he can see some more. 300, 350, and all of a sudden the line starts to stop. And these men all come to a stop. And as he gets a little further to the head of the line, he realizes why. Because up in the front of the line, there's a limousine that has a flat tire. The limousine is stopped as a flat tire. And behind the limousine is a hearse. And behind that hearse is another hearse. And his, you know, and his curiosity has got the best of him. He goes over and the limo driver's changing the flat tire. So he goes to the back window and he knocks on the window. The window comes down and there sits there an impeccably dressed man who's got next to him the biggest, meanest, ugliest dog that you'd ever see. And the man looks inside and he says, I don't understand, what's going on here? And the man sitting in the limo says, well, do you see that first hearse behind me? And that hearse is, is uh, my wife. And uh, that dog sitting next to me, this dog right here, it killed her. That guy goes, oh man, I'm really sorry to hear that. He goes, well, who's in the second hearse? He goes, well, in the second hearse, that's my mother-in-law. He goes, and you see this dog right here? This dog sitting next to me killed her too. And the guy goes, man, I'm really sorry to hear that. And he starts to jog away, and then he has, like, a thought. And he goes back to the window, and he knocks on the window, and the window comes down, and, and he says, Mr., can I borrow that dog sometime? And the man says, get in line. <laughs> All right. You didn't like that one. Okay, then you'll love this one. Then you'll love this one. All right. There's a man who lives in a city and he gets a telegram. And a telegram's from a mortician that says, you know, I'm sorry to inform you, but your mother-in-law has passed away. Would you like her embalmed? Would you like her buried? Or would you like her cremated? So his response was, I think we better do all three. I don't want to take any chances. <laughs> so, whatever. I mean, you, you, you take it for what it's worth. Uh, okay, all right, well, okay, here. You know what? Cl close your eyes for a second. Close your eyes for a second. Close your eyes. And I'm going to say the magic the magic word, mother-in-law. Close your eyes. And I want you to picture in your mind what you picture. Everyone's eyes closed? All right. Now I want you to look up here for a second. Do you remember this? Is that what you picture? 
right? Or, hey, huh, remember this? Yeah, boy, this thing has multi-purposes. I mean, I don't know what you picture. It could be this, and it could have been that until you actually got married. You know, hey, got one? Okay, and then it goes like that. But, I, you know, I don't know what it is that you picture. But, hey, what we're going to learn today in the book of Ruth is how to get along with your mother-in-law. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ruth as we look at how to get along with mother-in-law. We're in the first chapter, and we'll get some insights as to how Ruth dealt with her mother-in-law and how she learned to get along with her and what the things that she did that really impressed her. But in Ruth chapter 1, starting with verse 6, we read these words. Then she arose, speaking of Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go and return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and, they, and lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, and go, for I am, I am too old to have a husband. If I, have, if I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than it is for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. It says, And they lifted up their voices, and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her, her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. Where, I di where you die, I will die, and there I will also be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came about when they came to Bethlehem that all of the city was stirred because of them. And the women began saying, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The last time we got together, we were introduced to a family that found themselves in the midst of some of the darkest days in the history of the nation of Israel. In fact, in the first verse, we're told that it was in the days when the judges ruled. And to get a good feel for that, all you have to do is turn back to the end of the book of Judges, and we find this in verse 25 of chapter 21. It says that, and this was during the days where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time where there was chaos and confusion. There were no set rules. Each individual set his or her own standard. And it almost sounds pretty much like today. A day when there are no absolutes. There were no right and wrong. It was just you did what you wanted to do and you did what you can justify and rationalize. And there was no standard to go back to. So in a lot of ways it could remind us of what we're going through even in our own culture today. And it's against this black background that this diamond of a love story that's going to take place. It's almost like, I know many of you guys have given your, your wife or girlfriend, you've given them some jewelry, you've given them a diamond, and you get that black case. And the reason the case is black, particularly for some of us, is so that little diamond that's in there will stand out against a black backdrop. You know, and it's like this precious gem that you can, you can see it. The only reason you can see it is because that case is so black. And you know, because when you put it on, it disappears. But, but, the, but the thought is there, and that's really what's important, right, man? Right, 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 right. All right. But anyway, so that's what's going on here. That's the backdrop for this story, this love story that's going to take place. And we're introduced to this prodigal family, and they leave the, their hometown of Bethlehem, which was translated the house of bread and praise. And they go to a land and to a people that for 18 years had oppressed the people of God. 
They went to a place that they thought could provide for them where God couldn't in their hometown. And they went to a place that God said was, you know what, you're going to the land of Moab, and Moab, frankly, is my trash can. You're going to go from the house of bread and praise, and you're going to find, try to find your needs met in a, in a garbage can. You know, you're going from the dinner table to the dumpster. And you think somehow that's going to be better for you. And so he just kind of lays it out. Elimelech is the man in his family. Elimelech, his name translated means my God is my king. Here's a man whose God is his king, who takes his family, his wife Naomi, who is recognized by everyone around as a pleasant woman who could somehow or another rise above her circumstances. She didn't live under him. She lived above him. And she was a pleasant woman to be with. And she was smiling despite the fact that she had two boys who were puny or unhealthy and, and, uh, and sickly, unhealthy, and puny. I mean, two, two guys that were just, you know, for the most part, just wimps. And uh, that's where they end up. And so as we look at this, Elimelech dies. And these two boys marry Moabite women. And that's where we find ourselves today as we look at what's going on here. And what I want to do is I want to share five things with you so we can better understand and remember the story. But the first thing we need to take a look at is the reason for their return to Judah or to Bethlehem. There's a reason that they're returning there. Now as we look at this, we see when she had heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home. She had heard that, hey, you know what? Hey, there's food finally again in, in, in our land, and we can go back home. And, we, and that's where we belong. Because that's, where, that's where we belong. You know, that's our family. That's where we live. And you know what's interesting to me is, I had a, a question that was asked at the end of the time that we met last time, and it was a good question. And the question was this. Explain to me why it was wrong for Elimelech to take his family to the land of Moab to look for food if he was to be the provider of his family if he was to try to find a way to provide for their needs. Why was it so wrong for him to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab? Because after all, there's a famine in Bethlehem, and it obviously can't be easy to find food and shelter, clothing, and all the basic necessities that a man should provide for his family. So why was it so wrong for him to leave there and to go to Moab? And that's an excellent question. It's one that we need to understand in order to get a better feel for what God expects of us as his people. So if you've got your Bibles, flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 11. And I want to remind you why this was such a major problem and why it was wrong when he made this decision. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, God is speaking to his people and he's saying, Hey, don't forget now, I've taken you out of another garbage can, which was Egypt. And I'm taking to you a land that I'm going to promise to you, a land that will be overflowing with milk and honey. And all that you basically have to do is be obedient to me and listen to me and follow my commands and walk in my ways. And I'll guarantee you that I'm going to take care of you. And so this is what's taking place in Deuteronomy 11 and starting with verse 10. It says, for the, for the land into which you are entering to possess is not like the land of Egypt which you came from where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. Oh, no, but this land into which you're about to cross to possess in it, it will be a land of hills and valleys and drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares, and the eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. And it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today that you love the Lord your God and you serve him with all of your heart and your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season and the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your cattle and you shall eat and be satisfied. God is making him a promise. He says, man, listen to me. If you just believe me and you trust me and you're obedient, I want to guarantee you that this place you're going will be nothing like the place from which you came, where you worked hard and then they took all the, all, all the spoils of your labor. This is going to be a place where you can enjoy the fruit of your own labor. And I will bless you, but I'm going to warn you. I want to tell you right now, beware in verse 16, lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and you serve other gods and worship them. Because he goes on to say that, you know what, my anger will burn against you. And he continues in his passage and says this, you know what, and you know what's going to happen to you? If you don't obey me and you turn from me and you don't walk in my commandments, then I will shut the reins of heaven up and you will not be blessed. And your work will not yield any fruit. And you're not going to get ahead. And the bottom line of all of it is this. God expected them to be obedient to him. Every famine that's mentioned in the Bible, all 13 of them, were a direct result of the disobedience of God's people. 
He had made them a promise. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, you will experience consequences. Now, here's the dilemma as far as Elimelech is concerned, and how do I meet the needs of my family? What did God want Elimelech, along with all of God's people, to do in the midst of this famine? They wanted, he wanted them to obey. But not only did he want them to obey at this point, because it's obvious they, they're experiencing the, the, uh, the product of their disobedience, what he wanted them to do was to cry out to God and confess their sin before God. What we did was wrong. God, we, we humbly come before you. We pray and we ask you to forgive us. We ask you to hear us from heaven. We ask you to heal our land and to make this right because what we did was wrong. The problem that Elimelech had is the same problem that most of us have when we experience consequences of wrong actions. We've got two choices at that point. One is we can say, God, I'm experiencing the consequences for, for my actions, and please forgive me and heal me and restore me and straighten me out and send me in the right direction. Or we got the other approach was this. You know what? I'm not going to recognize that the consequences are a result of my disobedience. And what I'm going to do is, in my own ingenuity, in my own strength, in my own ability, I'm going to find a way to get out of this mess. And so what Elimelech did was exactly that. I'm not going to turn to God and ask for forgiveness. I'm not going to ask him to heal our land. I'm not going to pray to him and humble myself and admit that we are wrong. No way. I'm going to go and I'm going to drag my whole family and we'll go to Moab. I don't care if it is a garbage can. God, you're not going to break me. That's what he did. And we see that in our culture all the time. Let me give you an example that maybe will help you to understand it. We just finished the finance series. And maybe the symptom of your financial problems is the fact that you're just a greedy person everything that you see you want and so you've got this problem where you've got financial symptoms which are a problem of the fact that you want everything you see the symptom is you got financial problems the root problem may be that God says you know why you got financial problems you're greedy and greed is wrong and it's a violation of God's standards and God says this be content and so you got a choice. You say, well, man, maybe I am experiencing financial problems because I'm greedy but you know what though hey I don't care I'm not really greedy because there's other people who have more stuff than me and, and they can't be greedy, so I can't be greedy. But God knows your heart. He knows whether you're greedy. So you've got a choice. You either confess that, agree with God that, yeah, you know what? We're in financial trouble because I've been disobedient to your principles. Or we can go the other route. Hey, I don't need to confess anything. I'm not going to agree that what I did was wrong. I'm going to go out and I'm going to beg, borrow, steal, and do whatever I can so I can keep buying everything that I want to buy. And so we don't trust God anymore. We begin to trust ourselves. The same problem occurs in other areas of life. What about, you know, sexually transmitted diseases in our culture? Oh my goodness, stop and think about this for a minute. What does God say? Hey, the symptom is a sexually transmitted disease. The root problem is what? Sexual activity that's wrong before God. Whether it's homosexuality, whether it's adultery, whether it's fornication, it doesn't make any difference. God's saying that, hey, the only sexual behavior that's right before God is according to 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. And, and be monogamous in that relationship. But no, what man comes along to do is says this. I know we got all kind of troubles in our culture. I know we got all these sexually transmitted diseases. I know we got this plague of AIDS, AIDS and everything else that's going on. And yes, there are innocent victims of everything. And we need to recognize and understand that. But the root problem is this. We are disobeying the commandments of God when it comes to physical activity with one another. So now he says you got a choice. Either confess that and agree that everything you're doing is wrong in those areas. Or man says, I ain't agree to that. There's nothing wrong with that because we love each other. Because whatever, because blah, 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 we're committed. They, we come up with all this rationalization. And so what we want to do is what? We want to find a cure. We want a pill. We want an antidote. We want antibiotics. We want something that won't change our behavior. It just will change the consequences of our behavior. And God says, it ain't going to happen. You can keep trying, but you're still going to have it. And he goes on and on. I mean, you know, how about someone that may be unemployed? Are there people unemployed for, for reasons other than their own? Yes. Are there people unemployed because they didn't show up to work on time? Because they were lazy? Because they were liars? Because they said they were there and they weren't there? And if they found out that they weren't and they got terminated because of that? Are there people who are unemployed because they've been disobedient to the commandments of God? The answer is absolutely yes. Now, either you agree with God that that's why you experience the results, or what do you do? You go and you find another job, and the behavior's the same, and the results are still the same. Or you blame the boss, or you blame somebody else, or you're always blaming somebody for your problems. So God says, we got two choices in every area of life. 
We can either accept and confess and agree with God that we are experiencing the consequences of our actions, or we can try in our own ingenuity to minimize the consequences, and you can't do it. So the reason for this return to Judah is a very simple one. What God wanted from his people, he wanted to change their hearts. He wanted to change them from the inside. He wanted to change their behavior. And the consequences take care of themselves. If we do what's right before God, there are no consequences. So why was Elimelech wrong? I'll tell you why he was wrong, and it's going to be, I, I think, affirmed as we go through the story, because God wanted them. Listen to 2 Chronicles 7, 12 through 14. God reminds Solomon, he says this, The Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself self as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. Oh, sounds familiar. This is what he says. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I'll hear them from heaven and then I'll forgive their sin and then I'll hear their land. Man, it doesn't get any simpler than this. Folks, let me tell you something. If you are in the process of doing that which is wrong before God, God says you've got two choices. You can either confess your sin before God, agree that the consequences you're experiencing are a direct result of what you've done, or you can keep trying in your own ingenuity and in your own ways, try to get out of the mess that you're in, and it just won't happen. In fact, it'll get worse because that's what God cares about. He wants to change our hearts. He wants to change our behavior, and the consequences take care of themselves. So now here we have this family who are in this garbage can, this dumpster, and they find out that God has blessed their land again. And you know what? This woman can't wait to get home. And you know why she can't wait to get home? Because home is where she belongs. It's a lot like the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal family go away to a distant land. They don't belong there. They try to fit in there. They're just going to visit there for a short period of time. This short period of time turns into 10 years. One act of compromise turns into a lifestyle. And then all of a sudden, 10 years later, she's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. And this lady says, you know what? I don't belong here. I need to go home. Think about that. I don't belong here. I need to go home. See, there are some of us as children of God who are doing things that are wrong before God. We're living in a dumpster. We know we don't belong there, but we're there anyway. And our heart longs and cries to go home. That, little, that, that boy who was living with pigs recognized that, you know what, even his dad's servants were living in quarters better than he was. And he did not belong with pigs. He didn't belong with a pig because he didn't have a pig nature. And he couldn't wait to go home. Now here's the problem though. He's with all these pigs and he wants to go home. The problem was that there may be a pig there who's thinking, I don't really want to stay here either. I'd like to go check this out. So this pig gets all dressed up, shines himself up, cleans himself up, takes a little bath, puts on a little party outfit, and he heads on back with the boy to go home. The dad comes out, hugs his son, says, welcome home, son, and here's the pig all dressed up, ready for somewhere to go, and they bring him in the house anyway. So now they're at this big party, and the boy's sitting there with nice linen and silver, and he's eating from a plate, and the pig's sitting next to him, and the pig's saying, man, you know what? I don't feel very comfortable here. He goes, why don't you throw the food on the floor and we'll just eat off the floor. And I'm a little bit clean and I like to go outside. Why don't we take our food outside and we'll just roll around in the mud. See, the problem is, listen, this is good news. If you are really one of God's people, you will never be comfortable slopping with the pigs. Now, if you're not one of God's people and you get yourself all dressed up and you're going to hang around God's people it won't be too long before you're not comfortable hanging around with God's people either. You know why? Because it's a matter of our nature. You're a child of God or you're not. Now, when I look out here, I see a bunch of people all dressed up looking really nice. I can't tell whether you're a pig at heart or not, regardless of whether you're dressed. <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? And, and, and the good news is this. Sometimes, and it's so confusing in our culture today because sometimes we've got God's people who are going and slopping in the pig pen, and then we've got pigs that are getting themselves all dressed up and trying to hang out with God's people, and we really can't tell the difference you know, between the two of us. Because if you see some people slopping in the pig, pig pen, you'd think there's no way they're one of God's people. 
But you know what God says? That sometimes God's people make stupid decisions. They slop them with the pigs. Now, the difference is they'll never enjoy that. And the person that's sitting here all dressed up in church or at a Bible study or whatever, if your nature hasn't been changed, you won't enjoy it very much longer either. Because eventually you're going to say, you know what? I don't belong here, and I'm going home to hang out with the pigs. Because that's where I belong. We need to recognize and understand that. And we're going to talk a little bit as we look at the, at the life of Ruth, what is the difference between the two. And how do you know the difference between the two? Because it's really hard to tell. You know, I had a friend who was dating a gal who was absolutely, without question, the, the, um, a gold digger. There was no question about it. Anybody that knew her knew she was a gold digger. She was using him, she was manipulating him, and he was being manipulated because he was allowing himself to be manipulated. But basically the bottom line was this. And I challenged him, I said, you know, this is a very sensitive area for us to discuss because you are a lot bigger than me. <laughs> but I just want to tell you right now, there's something not right here, and I think you know that. And he knew that, but he was kind of compromising, and the problem with that was he wasn't thinking very clearly. Well, it didn't take long before he finally decided that, you know what, I, I, I see the signs that you see and everybody else was telling me about, and I want to go ahead and break this off. Well, that gold digger jumped from one guy to the next guy to the next guy to the next guy, and you know what? In our conversation, I said, it won't be long before that leopard shows her spots. Every year on his anniversary, he met a wonderful, godly woman. They've been married now for a few years. The last couple of years, he'll call me on his anniversary and he'll say, hey, you know what? The leopard will show her spots. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Because, why? Because that's the truth. You see, sometimes it takes time, but what time will do is time and situations will, will weed out the pretenders from the contenders. And that's what happens in God's family as well. So even though Naomi and her family were hanging in a dumpster for 10 years, her heart always was crying out to go back home. And when she heard that God blessed that land, she couldn't wait to go back home. She couldn't wait to run to God. She couldn't wait to see the comfort of her family and her friends and all of God's people. She needed to get back home where she belonged. And that's a wonderful reason to go back home. You know, the Apostle Paul said it best when he said this at the end of his life. You know how I know that I'm a child of God? Because I fought the good fight. I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. You know, sometimes it's going to take some of us to the end of our life to realize and affirm what God already knows about us and that we really truly are a child of God. He fought the good fight. He kept the faith. He finished the course. What a wonderful statement to make at the end of any one of our lives. The second thing that we look at is this. Look at the reaction to her advice. The reaction to her advice. Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, hey, you know what? Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you've shown to your dead. So, hey, you know what? Why don't you just go ahead back home? And may the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, but they said, we'll go back with you. So look at, look at Naomi says to these girls. She says, hey, listen, you know what? I, I, I want to tell you something. Go back home. And here's a wonderful thing she said. You know what? Go back home. And may God bless you and deal with you as kindly as you have dealt with me and your husbands. Ladies, the advice of all advice of how to get along with your mother-in-law, jot this down. You want to get along with your mother-in-law? Listen to me. Be nice to her son. Yes. And every man says, friendship, brother, on Super Bowl Sunday. Be nice to her son. What do you think? <laughs> oh, it's like, I don't know. She, I, you know, you got to really know her son. I mean, you know. <laughs> Be nice to her son. Be kind to her son. Now, you may say, well, that's okay. I can do that sometimes. Here's the hard part. And be kind to your mother-in-law. That's it. That's it right there. Be kind to her son and be kind to her. Kindness means you will forgive them. Kindness means that you will be useful and beneficial to them. Kindness means that you'll respond with good even though they may not deserve it. 
Kindness means that you'll seek to relieve their burdens and not add to them. And kindness means that you won't hold a grudge against him or her. We could just stop right there. That's enough, isn't it, ladies? Got a tough crowd today. But anyway, that's what it is. That's it in a nutshell, how to get along. She said, hey, may God deal kindly with you if you have dealt with your husbands. And if you have dealt with me, may God bless you. May God bring you a husband. May God meet your needs. May God do this. And you know what? And they all start crying. All boo-hoo. It's, it's definitely, definitely a lady scene right here. They're out by the road, and they're saying goodbye. It's the bus depot. It's the airport. It's walking out to the car and loading the suitcases in. It's, uh, you know, it's the train station. It's all of these things, and every movie combined, these three ladies are saying goodbye. I'll go with you. No, stay home. No, we want to go with you. Okay, well, let me remind you why it's probably not a good idea, which is what she says to them. Hey, listen, you know what? I don't have much to offer you. I don't have anything to offer you, really. You know, hey, return home. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? I'm not going to have any more sons. I'm too old to have children. And even if I had any children, you're not going to wait for them anyway and marry them. And I don't have any more sons, which in the Mosaic law meant, now this is kind of interesting law, if one son died and left a widow and another son wasn't married, then that son would have to marry that woman so that she wouldn't be a widow. Now, that's good enough reason right there to be praying that your brother lives a long time sometimes. <laughs> right there, God, may you protect this man. Because that was the law. And it's also what has to do with the kinsman redeemer, which we're going to talk about, which is fascinating. But she said, hey, I'm too old to have kids. Even if I could have kids, you're not going to wait around for them anyway. And it's better for you that you go ahead and stay here and marry because I'll guarantee you this. When you come home with me, no one will want anything to do with you in Bethlehem because you are from the land of Moab. And I thought, you know, isn't that interesting? We can go away to a foreign land and compromise, but you know what? When we're together and we have accountability and we stay where we belong, there is strength to be able to say, and, and she was confident, that if you come to Bethlehem, there's no man there that will have enough guts to marry you knowing that you came from Moab and the situation that you're in. You will grow old and you will die lonely just like me. So she said, no, I don't think you need to come back. So the fourth thing that we see is a wonderful response, and it's the response of Ruth. And it's the highlight of everything that we're going to look at. Because Ruth says this, if you've got your Bibles, if you can't see this, look back. Ruth's response was awesome. It's a response that is used oftentimes at weddings, but it's a response that I want us to understand and to look at. Because look what Ruth has to say as far as Naomi saying, go back. Ruth says this. Don't urge me to leave you, in verse 16, or to turn back from following you. You see, there's two daughters. One was Orpah and the other was Ruth. Ruth, I mean, Naomi laid out the facts. You know what? You're not going to like it where I'm going, and it's going to be tough for you to be there. And if I were you, I think you ought to go back home. Now, see, what's interesting to me is all of them were crying. Orpah was crying. Ruth was crying. Naomi was crying. They were all crying. But when... When Naomi laid out the facts and she told it the way that it was, it separated the commitment that Orpah had from the commitment that Ruth had. When she found out how tough it was going to be, Orpah said, well, I'd like to go with you, but you make good sense. I'll see you later. Goodbye. And she was gone down the road. And so Naomi said, hey, why don't you go ahead and go too? But Ruth said this, but Ruth clung to her, glued to her, was hugging her and said, you know what? Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And thus may the Lord do to me. And worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Let me just wrap this up with this. Seven evidences of a genuine commitment to follow the Lord. How do you know if you're a pretender? And how do you know if you're a child of God? Man, right here is the answer, folks. The first thing that we see is this. Ruth said this, where you go, I will go. Where you go, I will go. Here's what she said. Naomi, I know I'm going to pay an awful price. And I know I want to follow you. And I know you have nothing to offer because you're a widow and you're in poverty and you have nothing to offer me at all. But I just want to tell you what a real commitment, a genuine commitment is all about. Where you go, I'm going to go. 
Now, I want to challenge you to consider something. Jesus Christ often called his disciples and said, come and follow me. Follow me. And some of them said, well, no, wait, I got my own plans, and I've got my own dreams, and I've got my own goals, and you know what? Well, how, does, how, do, your, how do your plans fit in with my plans? And God, if you're going to mess my plans up, I'm sorry, but I'm not really interested in going with you. I've got my own life to live, and I'm going to go this way. See, Ruth said this, and this is a sign of a genuine commitment to God. A person that says, I have no plans, I have no goals, I have no agenda. God, I come to you as I am, just like this, and you lead me wherever you want to take me. Not my will be done anymore, but yours be done. The Apostle Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I don't even live anymore. But this life I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God, who has, who has given himself up for me. I have no more plans. There was a time in, in, uh, in Jesus' ministry where he was sharing with a crowd of people how tough it would be to follow him. And in, the, in, the, in John 6, 68, he said, hey, you know what? It's going to be tough to follow you. It's going to cost you your life. But if you want to gain your life, you've got to lose it. You're going to have to follow me. And the crowd of people that were, were listening to him saying, man, I'm not going to follow you if it's going to cost me something. I'm here because you're supposed to give me something. And so he turned around, and these people were all walking away, and he looked at his disciples, and he said, hey, well, what are you guys in or yeah, You going to go with them too? Now that you heard it's no you know, gravy train, are you going to go with them too? And Peter looked at him, and he said this, where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? Because you have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe you. And we've come to know that what? That you are the Savior of the world. And his question was, where are we going to go? Because you are the one that encompasses all truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come unto the Father but through me. And so they said, we, can't, we, we, can't, we ain't going nowhere. There's nowhere else to go. Let me ask you a question. Check your own heart. Are you a person that says, Lord, I'm willing to go wherever you want to take me? I have no agenda. I have no goals. I have no plans. I can't say yes or no to anything without consulting you because I want you to lead me. See, that's a sign of a genuine commitment. Have you believed and have you come to know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world? Have you believed that in your heart? The second thing she says is this. She goes, hey, you know what? And where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. If he tells me to go, I'll go. If he tells me to stay, I'll stay. I, you know, I, I, I'm just going to do what I'm told to do. Notice that Ruth would not only go with Naomi, but she would identify her in all of her poverty and all of her misery. She'd not be embarrassed to bear the same name that Naomi bore. She had the same name. And you know what? It's like saying today, hey, you know what? Are you ashamed to be called a Christian? Are you ashamed to be known as a Christian in certain circles, the uncomfortable circles? Oh, not here in the comfort of a church building or in the comfort of a Bible study, but I'm saying in your work. I'm saying at school. I'm saying, you know, with your family and your relatives. And I'm saying in tough environments where people look at you, you know, and they criticize you and they chastise you and they hate you. And if they could, they'd want to kill you in some ways. And Jesus said, why do you think the world will love you and hated me and killed me? If you're following me, you're just like me. You identify with me. You're going to be just like me and they're going to I hate you. Some of us are embarrassed. And that's going to separate the contenders from the pretenders. Because the pretenders will fall away when the first opportunity comes to say, well, I'm not really that kind of Christian. Well, what kind of Christian are you? There's only one kind. That's a person that gives his life to the Lord and they become born again according to the Bible. That's the only Christian that there is. There's not different types of Christians. What the heck's that all about? It's a cra it cracks me up. It's like, well, I'm not that kind of Christian. What kind are you? Well, I'm just the kind that, you know, kind of believes in God, but, I, you know, I don't make a big deal about it. Oh, I see. Well, what's that? This isn't the kind of Christian, this isn't the kind of lady this lady is. She says, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. And here's what she says. And your people will be my people. I'll tell you, frankly, you can't be a Christian without identifying with the people of God. It is probably the greatest evidence of a changed heart, and I'll tell you what that means. Before I was a Christian, I couldn't stand people who went around telling people about how they needed to know Jesus. I hated them. It's like, would you please shut up? What do you mean I need to know Jesus? If, do you, have you asked Jesus into your life? You know, would you like a broken face? 
What does that mean? Have I asked Jesus in my life? I hated people like that. They drove me nuts. Well, you know, if you haven't asked Jesus into your heart, then you know the Bible says that you're going to go to hell. Well, and, well, and you're going to heaven, right? Exactly. Well, why do you know you're going to heaven? Because I believe and I know that Jesus is my Savior. What? Just to drive me nuts. And they go around telling people, you need to know Jesus. You need to ask him in your life. You need to ask God to forgive you. You need to know Jesus because when you know Jesus, if you receive him, you ask him into your heart, then he says you'll become a child of God. That when you die, you'll go to heaven. Not because you're working your way to heaven because that's not going to get you there, but because you just believe in him. There's going to be a price that you have to pay because you're going to follow him and a lot of people are going to think you're nuts. And then, and then your family's going to think you're nuts and, you, and, and people at your work are going to think you're nuts and you may be passed up for a promotion and you may even you know, be terminated because of it. But hey, you know, but what you need to understand is he has the, the words of eternal life. He can raise you from the dead which you're dead spiritually and he can give you life and I used to hate people like that now I'm one of them <laughs> and it's hey and you know what and, and I'm proud to be one of you if you're one of us and the reason's simple because I know and I've come to know and I've come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world See, and Ruth said, and your people will be my people. And she said, and fourth, your God will be my God. You want to know why this wonderful woman, this athletic woman, this woman whose name means glamour or beauty, you want to know why this woman married some puny, unhealthy guy? It's fascinating to me, but I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that this lady met a family who knew the living and true God. And she was so attracted to this family that she overlooked the fact that this guy was a puny, unhealthy dude because she was so attracted to their God. That's what I believe. And your God will be my God. And then she goes on and says this, and where you die, I will die. Lord, I'm following you. I'm picking up my cross daily and I'm following you. You know what? And if they killed you and if they're going to persecute you, they're going to persecute me. But you know what? I'm not turning back because you have the words of eternal life. Where else am I going to go? Where you die, I will die. And she said this, which was really fascinating. She says, and when you, where you're buried, I'll be buried. See, here's what people believed in the Old Testament. They believed that God would raise them from the dead and they would live in the land that God had promised them. That's why it was so important for them to take their bodies and bury them in the land of promise. Abraham believed, if you go back and look at Genesis and Hebrew 11, Abraham believed that God had the ability to raise people from the dead. That's why he was willing to offer Isaac. God would raise him up. It didn't matter. I'll kill him. God will raise him. It doesn't matter. I don't know what this test is all about, but I'll do it. Because they believed God will raise people from the dead. And so they had a, a thing about where you are buried, I'll be buried because I believe what you believe, that God will raise us from the dead and we will live there and we will flourish there. And God has the ability to raise dead people to life. Now, that's what the Old Testament believed. She had that hope. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus said this, where I go, I'm preparing a place for you. You're going to come and be there with me. That was radically new to them because if you remember in John 11, Jesus said to Martha, hey, you know what? Don't you believe that your brother will raise from the dead? And she said, yeah, I believe that. We all believe that, that he'll raise from the dead, that he'll be raised from the dead on the last day. You're going to raise him from the dead. He says, no, but if you believe in me, you'll be raised now. And so what she was saying, what she was being told is, if you believe in Jesus Christ, though you're dead in your sins, God will raise you from the dead and make you alive spiritually. And so what she was saying was, I'll be buried with you because I believe God can raise us from the dead. Her hope was in the hope that they had. We have a further revelation that our hope is in Jesus Christ, who not only can raise us from the dead, but God raised him from the dead to demonstrate that he can raise us from the dead. And not only does he raise us spiritually from the dead, but one day he'll also raise us physically from the dead and that we will reign with him. That's what she was saying. It's an awesome thing when you understand what was going on. And your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And where you die, I'll die. And where the Lord, you know, and, he, and she made this promise. And if it ain't, you know what? And if I'm lying, then I'm frying. That's what she said. If I'm not telling you the truth, then may God judge me according to my words. And you know what I love about this? Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her and she stopped urging her. She passed the test. She passed the test. You know, we live in a culture today where it's like, oh, just add Jesus to your life. You're just missing something. Just add Jesus to your life. Just believe in him and everything will be wonderful. 
And you know what? I think we do a great disservice to people when we present the gospel that way. I really do. Because the first sign of opposition that comes along, they say, hey man, I, I didn't, buy, I didn't bar buy into this. I didn't bargain into this. I didn't know my family was going to give me a hard time. I didn't know my friends were going to desert me. I didn't know that I might lose a job or not be promoted or get cut from a team. Hey man, I didn't know anything like this was going on. I think we just need to be honest with people. Listen, you're going to pay a serious price to make this decision to follow Jesus Christ. But all I can ask you is this, where else are you going to go? Because he's the only one that has words of eternal life. He's the only one that can offer you what he offers you, and that's forgiveness of sin, and that you can have an eternity with God. Jesus is the only one that can do that. But you're going to pay a price to follow him, but you know what? It's still better than the price you're going to pay anyway, because one day, if you don't believe in him, you're going to pay a price in hell. I'd rather believe in him now and pay a price here on earth. Period. It doesn't get any easier than that. But we, you know, we want to sugarcoat it. This will be easy. Just, you know, we'll, we'll sneak them into believing. We'll deceive them into believing. What? I like what Naomi did. Hey, listen, I want to just lay out the facts. This is what's going to cost you. Are you willing to pay that price? Then come and follow me. That's what Jesus did. That's what's going to cost you. You willing to follow me? Get in line. Let's go. If not, then go home. I don't need you. Because you're just going to fall away anyway. And the last thing is this. We see the return to Bethlehem. So the two women went on their way until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women exclaimed, hey, is this Naomi? Man, she's been gone for at least 10 years. Is this her? Is she back? Is this Mary Sunshine, the pleasant woman that always lived above her circumstances? Remember how she would smile and she would just say, praise the Lord, everything's great. Even though her kids were puny and healthy. I mean, man, this woman is exciting to be around. I'm so glad she's home. But look what happens to her. She says this. Hey, you know what? Don't call me sunshine anymore. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me any of that. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. And here's why I believe that she knew that they were judged for going to Moab. She said this. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, why would you call that kind of a person pleasant? Wow. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You see that? She knew that the loss of her husband and the loss of her sons and the loss of everything was because of her disobedience as a family to the commandments of God. And she said, man, don't call me pleasant anymore. My life is empty. Now, I don't know the difference between being full and being empty. And I don't know how far that is, but I know this. That's a long way from having a full tank of gas to having no gas at all. And she's saying, I went away full and I came back with nothing. Can I just share something with you folks? If you're going to go live in the dumpster with the enemies of God, and think you can enjoy sin for a short period of time, you're going away full with the fellowship of God, with the joy of knowing the Lord, with the joy of knowing forgiveness and understanding that God's ways are better than any other way you've ever experienced. You're going away with all that knowledge, man. You have all that fullness of life with God. And I'll guarantee you this, while you're off playing in the world and doing what you're doing, you're going to come back to God broken and humble and empty, and you're going to lose it all. And the wonderful news is this, that God will restore you to fellowship if you will just confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a long way from full to empty, and it doesn't need to be that way. And so here she is. She returns from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And I want to close our time together because as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking of three types of people. There are those who are all dressed up on the outside but have never been changed from within. They're here because you're trying to please a spouse or a child or a family member or you're playing a game and God knows it. You're a pig all dressed up and eventually you're going to get tired of being here among God's people. But you know what God says? He offers this invitation to you. You know what? You need to come to know and believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And if you will do that, God will change your nature and make you a child of God. That he will restore you. He will make you whole from the inside out. It's not a matter of dressing up on the outside. It's a matter of having a new heart. It's a matter of being radically changed. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. 
You know, you got to ask yourself the same question Jesus did. Hey, you know what? What would you exchange for your soul? What is a profit man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? And what would you exchange for your soul? And where would you go now that you've heard that Jesus has the words of eternal life? Where are you going to turn? Where are you going to go? There's nowhere to go. It's just time that you get right with God and you believe in Jesus Christ. The second group of people are those who have given your life to the Lord, but you know what? Like Elimelech, you thought you could visit the land of compromise and sin, that you could just visit there for a short period of time, that no one would know any different, and that you wouldn't pay a price. But like Elimelech and his family, he went there full, and she's the only one that came back. And she came back empty. And God says this, you know what? <laughs> you can't sin for a short period of time and enjoy it. You may think the pleasures of sin are temporary, but you know what? You're going to pay an extreme price for that. And we need to recognize and understand that. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And third is, and lastly, those like the prodigal son's brother. There are going to be people here who hear these words that, you know what, are thinking to yourself, you know what, but I am doing what God wants me to do. And I'm serving him every day. And I'm not doing anything that's wrong. I'm doing everything that's right. And you know what? Frankly, sometimes I don't think God even knows what I'm doing. And I'm getting tired of doing the good thing, and I'm getting tempted to do the bad thing. And we need to recognize and understand this. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love that you have shown toward his name and have ministered and is still ministering to his saints. That God is un not unjust, that he's still a rewarder of those who seek him. Folks, I don't know what category you fall into, but if we look at the story of Ruth, it's pretty obvious that there's three groups of people. If you don't know the Lord, trust in him today. If you know the Lord and you're living with the pigs, hey, it's time that you go on home and ask God to forgive you. And the last group of people, if you're just doing what's right, keep on doing it because God is not unjust. He will reward those who serve him. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time to be together. We just thank you for the story of Naomi and Ruth and what a genuine commitment is all about. God, help us examine ourselves and to know as your spirit testifies with our spirit that we're a child of God. Give every person here that hears these words an assurance that if they died today, that they would be absent from the body and present with you in heaven. God, if they're not sure of that, may they trust in you. May they trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. May they do that on the inside between you and them, that you may change them and radically give them a new nature. God, we just thank you that it's by grace alone that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift that you offer to us, to those of us who would receive that, we just thank you that you give us the privilege to be called a son of God to those who believe in your name. God, we just thank you and praise you for this day. In Christ's name, amen.